CPHI podcast series. Welcome to the CPHI podcast series. I'm Lucy Chard, digital editor for CPHI Online. And in this episode, I'm joined by Alan Palmer of Elixir Medicines to talk about neurological disorders and everything that is encompassed under this terminology, including the history of the disease, the different modalities and developments in therapeutics, and what the future of research into care in this field looks like. Professor Alan M. Palmer is an internationally recognised neuroscientist and prize-winning biotech entrepreneur whose career is focused on neurodegenerative disorders and their treatment. He has board-level experience in several organisations and is currently a non-executive director of One Nucleus Limited and the British Neuroscience Association. He's also co-founder and CEO of Elixir Medicines Limited and sits as an advisor on boards for several charitable and governmental organisations. Following a PhD and postdoctoral work in the Institute of Neurology in London, he became a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Centre in the USA. In 2005, Alan was voted London Biotechnology Network Entrepreneur of the Year, and his scientific research has had a high impact, particularly in the areas of Alzheimer's disease and traumatic brain injury. It's a real pleasure to be joined by Alan today, and I'm personally looking forward to soaking up as much knowledge on the subject today as possible. Okay, so thank you so much, uh, Alan, for joining me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're going to go straight for a relatively uh, big question uh, straight up here. We want to set the tone a bit, I think, for for what we're talking about. And I think this is a brilliant way to do that to provide some context. So could you please describe the burden on society of CNS diseases, disorders and conditions you know, why we focus on these so much in in the medical industry and how likely that burden is likely to change in the future. Well, thanks, Lucy, and thanks very much for the invitation to speak to you all today. Um, Yeah, it's a bit cumbersome with all of the words there, so diseases, disorders and conditions. That's because it is so rather messy. So I'm going to use the word disorders because traumatic brain injury isn't a disease and a lot of these psychiatric conditions are not diseases or the because they, they don't have clear biomarkers to indicate that they are diseases. So I'll use the word disorders, brain disorders, to cover um, all of the things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to focus on neurological disorders and psychiatric disorders. So neurological disorders, by that I mean things like Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease, and psychiatric disorders, things like depression, anxiety and schizophrenia. And in terms of their impact, I think it comes at two levels. One is morbidity, which is disability and also mortality, which is death. So in terms of morbidity, neurological disorders, they have a a profound effect. There's a term I need to introduce called disability-adjusted life year. And what this is, it's a sum of the the number of years lost because of premature death because of disease, plus the number of years lived with with a disability. So if you take these, and these figures are are worldwide, so for neurological disorders, the daily, D-A-L-Y, is 276 million years. That's huge. And uh, for psychiatric psychiatric disorders, it's not quite so big, but it's, it's still a staggeringly big number, 184 million years. So there's a huge impact for these these brain disorders here. In terms of mortality and disability, in terms of mortality, neurological disorders, they kill about 9 million people a year. And psychiatric disorders, it's, it's 8 million. So these... Um, these daily figures and the fatality metrics um, clearly show 
that there's a long way to go in terms of treatments for brain disorders. And this is so backed up by Deloitte's survey that was published recently, which looked at the whole, the worldwide global neuroscience market. And, it, and last year, they reckon that to be worth about $612 billion. And what's surprising and surprised me is that 73% of that number is made up by non-pharmacological products. So there's a huge area for, for, for drug products to move into here. So there's a, a massive opportunity. Um, and this, this opportunity is going to get bigger in the years ahead. For neurological disorders in particular, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and stroke, for example, they don't just increase with age. They increase exponentially with age after age 65. So, and, and, and because people are living longer, that's got a profound impact. But on top of that, uh, what, what we see now is the baby, baby boomer effect. There's a huge increase in fertility after the war. So after, so 1945, 60 years, 65 years would have been um, 2010. So the baby boomer generation are aging very, very quickly. And this is having a big impact on terms, in terms of the number of people affected. So, for example, the global incidence of dementia in 2019 was 57 billion. By 2050, this number is going to increase to 153 million. So there's a, the numbers are going to increase quite starkly. And this is going to put huge pressures on healthcare. Uh, organizations across the world. In terms of psychiatric disorders, they, they're increasing as well, but not quite so starkly. But there are a number of factors here in terms of the, the model lifestyle and the things that are happening are coming down the track and sure that climate change is going to have, it, over time, is going to have a huge effect on people's mental health. AI, the same, because that's that's change and big changes coming in that area. Also things like addiction, particularly the opioid crisis, particularly in the United States. Long COVID as well is having a profound effect here. And just generally people getting burnt out with mental exhaustion. So there's a, it's a, the need is big and the, and the need is growing very starkly. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I mean, we're just seeing the effects really of um, the things such as the war in the, in the 40s um, coming into that population, the baby boomer population. But all of these things that are happening in our very recent history and you're not going to see the effects of that for a long time, but they're going to have a massive impact. And in terms of neurological disorders, the other factor is that the, the cost of caring for people with Alzheimer's disease is very, very expensive. Mm. Um, so the, you know, the cost multiply across the whole of society. It's uh, social care, NHS, uh, healthcare providers generally across the world. So, Yeah, it's a big, it's a big part of uh, what we need to focus on in healthcare, really. Could you describe, uh, touch on some of the social challenges and the wider challenges there could you describe some of the challenges uh, involved in in cns drug discovery and development yeah sure i think one of the biggest issues with discovering drugs to treat brain brain disorders is the very complexity of the brain itself it's the most complex structure in the known universe it contains 80 billion 86 billion neurons along with about 86 billion glial cells supporting cells and the neurons connect to each other at, at points called synapses. And the number of synapses in a human brain um, is 10 to the power of 14, which is very hard to, a number very hard to get your head around. But if you imagine your favorite beach and imagine how many particles of sand there are on, on that beach, 10 to the 14 is greater than all the grains of sand in the world. Mm. So the brain has essentially got unlimited computing power. It's insufficiently understood because of that. Our understanding of brain disorders is far from complete, so there's a lot to learn there. So I think one of the big issues is, is not really understanding how the brain works, 
we're making great strides, but there's still a long way to go. The other factor is the, the existence of the blood-brain barrier. The brain uh, is, and spinal cord, unlike any other organ, are separated um, from the bloodstream by a permeability barrier. So the, 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 the brain has a phenomenal vasculature. It's got a huge demand for energy, which means it needs glucose and oxygen on, on tap all of the time, which, which means it, it has a, a very complex vasculature to support it. And if you rolled it out in a human brain, it would run from, from Glasgow to, to London, so about 400 miles long. And it means every neuron is no more than about 40 microns from a, glia, from a, a blood vessel. But the blood vessel is, has, is, is specialised as a so-called blood-brain barrier, which, which means the endothelial cells are connected. So for any compound to get from the blood into the brain, they've got to go across the cells. So that means they've got to have the right uh, physical, chemical, physical chemical characteristics. That is, they need to be moderately lipophilic and have a molecular weight of less than about 450 Daltons. Um, so, so that makes it difficult for large molecules to get in and also hydrophilic molecules to get in unless there's a specific transporter there. So this needs to be taken into account when dr- discovering drugs for, for brain disorders. Uh, the other factors are, um, in terms of bias of, of assessing the compounds is confirmation bias, which is plagued the field. I'll come back to that later. Publication bias, which means that ideas get out there which are not necessarily correct. And also the um, uh, CNS disorders are, are prone to... Um, Psychological effects. So having a having a good placebo group and double blind clinical trials are essential with it with the placebo and the and the placebo effect is usually quite large, particularly for the psychiatric drugs. So that's another issue that needs to be taken into account. So there are a number of challenges, but most of which can be overcome and will be overcome in time. But we still we still got a long way to go because of a limited understanding of the uh, of, of most brain disorders. Mm, sort of a it's good direction almost so we know uh, a lot of things about what we need to focus on it seems but yeah like you say a long long way to go so neurodegeneration plays a, a key role in several cns disorders as you've mentioned so where are we in the in the quest for neuroprotective drugs that could slow or halt the disease progression Okay, well, I think a neuroprotective drug um, that slows the progression and delays the onset could have a transformational effect on all neurodegenerative diseases and disorders. But I think the, the prevailing paradigm that we work in too is the so-called magic bullet approach, which came through with the discovery of antibiotics because they, they were targeting prokaryotic cells rather than eukaryotic cells. And the idea of a magic bullet comes from a, a German myth um, or German story, which was that somebody wanted to kill anybody, they, they, if they had this gun, he would shoot this magic bullet and would go through a crowd and kill the exact person he wanted to and dodge various people until he got to the exact spot. So that's the idea of the magic bullet. But I'm not sure whether it works particularly well or applies particularly well to, to treating brain disorders because it's, it, the brain is much more complicated than that and they're all eukaryotic cells. They're not just fundamentally distinct by being prokaryotic cells. So, so that doesn't really apply very well. Um and I think the other factor is that neurodegeneration itself is a very complex process. There are a number of things going on. There's excitotoxicity, which is overexcitation by glutamate in particular, but also aspartate. So this then leads to overexcitation, leads to the cells dying, hence the term excitotoxicity. The cells get excited to death. Oxidative stress. The brain is unusual. In it. it's, very got, it's got very limited antioxidant capacity. So ox- Oxidative stress is when there's an imbalance between the antioxidant forces and the pro-oxidant forces. And uh, oxidative stress um, is, is something that the brain is particularly liable to 
um, partly because it's got so many phospholipids uh, in, within its structure. Another factor which goes along with oxidative distress, in fact, this could be considered as its partner in crime, is neuroinflammation. This is another a key factor, and that's becoming increasingly recognized as a key player in the process of neurodegeneration. And finally, um, um, there are other factors as well, but in particular, I'd like to point out mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are key to the functioning of the brain because it, it demands and requires so much energy. But 20%, it takes about 20% of the, of the body's blood supply, and only sort of accounts for a, a, a small fraction, about 3% of its, of its mass. So the mitochondria are key to, to, to energy supply within, within neurons and other cells. And dysfunction of mitochondria are recognized to play a key role in, in, in neurodegenerative disorders. Then it becomes intimately linked with excitotoxicity, oxidative stress, and neuroinflammation. So these, all, these things all, take, all play a part at the same time. So there are a number of pathophysiological processes occurring simultaneously. And so maybe rather than targeting a single targets such as plaques with amyloid and Alzheimer's disease, maybe we should uh, have a more scattergun approach and hit a number of other factors at the t- same time. And there's that, and history bears that conclusion out. In the in the 1980s and 90s, particularly, but particularly in the 1980s, the pharmaceutical industry worked very hard and diligently to focus on drugs to treat stroke and traumatic brain injury. And there's a huge effort in terms of targeting the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, which is a channel receptor complex and the number of NMDA receptor antagonists went into clinical trial, and all of them failed. I've, I conducted an analysis of several of these to look at their therapeutic ratio in, in experimental models and show that they all had very poor therapeutic ratio. The therapeutic ratio is the, the, the dose you need to produce the side effects and the, uh, over the, um, the, the dose required to produce efficacy. So you want a high therapeutic index. The therapeutic index of all of these compounds to treat stroke and traumatic brain injury were low. And so that that could have complicated things, but in the in the clinical, so the dose that was used in stroke trials was often uh, kept lower than perhaps should have been in order to avoid the side effects. But in traumatic brain injury, where the patients were anaesthetized, and they were able to increase the dose, but no significant effect was was seen at all. So at that this point, the whole industry basically gave give up on on stroke or largely give up on stroke and traumatic brain injury. And I was working in at the university. Of Pittsburgh at the time, and uh, uh, we we conducted a, some, a number of studies in experimental models uh, of traumatic brain injury and found that when we cooled them down, we cooled the animals down to 32 degrees centigrade for four hours, the amount of damage was massively reduced. We translated that into the clinical arena and, and looking at patients with severe head injury, and we cooled, cooled them down to a core body temperature of 32 degrees for 24 hours. And that improved the outcome three, six, and nine months after their, their severe uh, head injury. So that's now sort of used as a standard standard measure of care and benefit in many patients. So, but that illustrates that the, the hypothermia is going to have an effect on multiple pathophysiological processes at the same time. So it's more of a widespread approach. The way uh, supporting the the argument that you know need a multi-targeted approach rather than a single target approach. Yeah, that's a really key point. As you mentioned, the brain is so complex. Of course, it makes it makes sense when you when you think about it in that way that there wouldn't be just one that one way of you know sort sort of fixing the problem or addressing anything. If only life was that simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so you mentioned um, Alzheimer's disease in that as well, and it's the most common neurodegenerative disease that we we see today. Could you 
provide a bit more of an overview of Alzheimer's disease and its uh, current research and uh, treatment for it at the minute? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll go back to uh, uh, Alzheimer, who's a, a German neurologist who worked at the, at, at the Frankfurt Mental Asylum for a while, came across a patient uh, called uh, Augusta Dieter, who had clearly had dementia. And he cared for her for, for quite some time and she was um, completely, so got deteriorated very rapidly. He then moved to Munich and he, he made an arrangement for when she died to have the brain sent to Munich for him to uh, look at it uh, pathologically. And around this time, a number of stains were becoming available, particularly using silver, uh, pioneered by Nissel. And then that allowed people to look under the microscope and actually see neurons. And Alzheimer's was the first to, to look at the brain of this this lady who'd had had dementia and found these two unusual pathological changes, so-called senile plaques, which existed outside of neurons, looking at the cortex. And then and within the cells, he found these really unusual structures called neurofibrillary tangles. And, and, and the tangles hadn't been seen before. Um, in a book then, uh, four years later, M.L. Krebler, sort of, um, the pioneer in psychiatrist in Munich, um, described this uh, Alzheimer's description as it des- described those patients as having Alzheimer's disease. So that began to the use of the word Alzheimer's disease. But it was re- because uh, Augusta was in, in her 50s when she died. Uh, it was regarded as a disease of pre-senile, it was regarded as pre-senile dementia. And anybody who was demented over the age of 65, they were regarded of just just a natural consequence of growing old. And then in um, in the 60s, uh, two people in uh, in Newcastle, Martin, Sir Martin Rothenburn and Tomlinson, uh, looked at a large number of post-mortem brain tissue and saw no qualitative difference between the plaques and the tangles in people under the age of 65 and those aged more than 65. So the term senility, senility sort of dropped away a bit then, but it clearly showed there was a, there was a, a single disease taking place here. And the, the other big change that took, took place was in, in Austria in the 1960, 1960 it's a group there started working on post-mortem human brain and were, and were able to measure the concentration of dopamine in the neostratum of patients who'd had Parkinson's disease and showed that there was a deficiency in the neurotransmitter dopamine and its metabolites. And that immediately raised the possibility of treating these patients with, with drugs targeted in the dopaminergic system. And that, that came about with um, L-Dopa, which came in, in, onto the market a few years later. And then uh, we've got a number of other dopaminergic drugs but that, that, that meant we had a rational approach to treating neurological disorders by identifying biochemical changes in the brain, then formulating hypothesis and prosecuting new therapies. And so that, that sort of raised the hope that the similar thing could be done in, in Alzheimer's disease. I did my PhD at the Institute of Neurology with David Bowen, who pioneered uh, post-mortem studies of Alzheimer's disease. And he conducted a very large study of 36 biochemical constituents in the brains of people with post-mortem tissue from people with Alzheimer's disease, matched it with controls in terms of age, post-mortem time, and also a goal state, the, how, the nature by which they died. And, he, and, and out of all those me- measurements, he, he found that one, one enzyme, cholinesterol transferase, was reduced. That was rapidly confirmed um, by two other groups, and um, Elaine Perry and uh, Peter Davis in, in Edinburgh. Then 21 years later, that led to the first rational therapy for Alzheimer's disease and inhibitors of the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, which meant that the, the deficiency was corrected in Alzheimer's disease because the, the, the acetylcholine that was released 
didn't get metabolized so quickly. So there's more cholinergic function. So it's another example of the rational therapy. And then a similar thing happened with, with the amyloid hypothesis and Alzheimer's disease. Because um, I, 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 at the time I was working at the University of Pittsburgh, and I remember distinctly uh, on the on national public radio, they call it Radio 4 in America, the um, driving into work one day, they mentioned John Hardy um, making a discovery of, of a, a, a genetic link to amyloid precursor protein. And what's strange is I remember exactly where I was driving into work, which is an example of, uh, example of episodic memory, uh, which is one of the early memory deficits in Alzheimer's disease. And so that then uh, opened up a whole new area of Alzheimer's disease research, raising the possibility of having drugs that can actually interfere with the, the disease process, not just treat the symptoms as the cholinesterase inhibitors do moderately well. Mm. So it's so fascinating. It's yeah, like the history of the disease and going all the way back to Alzheimer's, uh, that first case, it's really interesting to see, you know, it's been, we've known about it for a long time and studying it for a long time. And there's still so, so many aspects to it. And there's so many different uh, ways that we're trying to target it as well, which is really interesting. And there's new discoveries happening regularly throughout the, the history of uh, looking at the disease. And it's um, definitely been a big challenge, hasn't it, over the past few decades. Are there any um, anti-amyloid strategies? I mean, you said that they've, they've really dominated this translational Alzheimer's research, but with limited success in terms of, you know, coming to a, a a point of um, cure for the disease and things like that. But three humanized monoclonal antibodies have been recently gained FDA approval based on reducing the amount of these amyloid plaques in the brain and slowing that cognitive decline. What impact do you think that this will have for the treatment on the progression of Alzheimer's disease? I mean, there's been an awful lot in the news about it saying that there are real breakthroughs, but can you enlighten us a little bit more on that? I did a... a a search on ALS Forum earlier this year, which is a very um, good website from the USA. And they they report there have been 298 candidates assessed in Alzheimer's clinical trials. And a quarter of these, that's about 100, are focused on amyloid. So it's, amyloid is taking the lion's share of research in this area. And assuming that each of those phase three trials cost about 250 million, those 100 trials would have cost 25 billion. And that's probably an underestimate and doesn't include all the phase two and phase one studies. So it's a, it's a major effort has been put into this, and it, it's to the credit of the pharmaceutical industry. They've, they've stuck with this and carried on um, to, 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 to get a new therapy. Um, most, uh, most of them are focused on humanized, you say humanized monoclonal antibodies against amyloid beta, which is the component um, that, that forms the, the plaques within, within the, the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And in response to uh, numerous failures, um, the clinical trials are more recently focused on early, early st- more early stages of Alzheimer's disease, and even at uh, something called mild cognitive impairment, which is a form of the disease before pathology is laid down, or you can diagnose the disease by the pathology. So the amyloid hypothesis was formulated by uh, John Hardy, and uh, in, in 1990, as I've said. And it suggests that the disease is caused by the, the formation of, of amyloid. And, and then if you tackle this, the disease will be sorted out. However, there are some serious shortcomings, some pioneering work by two pathologists in Germany called Brack and Brack, uh, who looked at the pathology of, of Alzheimer's disease, looking at the number of plaques and tangles and shown that 
the disease it progresses through the brain in a particular topographical uh, order. Um, and the distribution of plaques within the Alzheimer brain doesn't seem to correspond to that pattern, unlike the, the unlike tangles. So plaques are more so randomly distributed, whereas tangles evolve in a distinct pathway beginning in the entorhinal cortex and spreading out to other areas of cortex and subcortex. And then a number of people have been reported who have a very heavy amyloid burden in their brains without any symptoms of dementia. And in addition to that, if amyloid was, was central to the disease, there should be a very good correlation to the number of plaques in the brain and dementia itself. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, those studies are difficult because it's difficult to, to get a, a, a constant duration between the um, assessment of dementia and, 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 and looking at the post-mortem brain and looking for, for changes. But we were involved in with along with David's study. In fact, it was a study with the three Davids. My PhD supervisor, David Bowen, along with David Neary, a neurologist in Manchester, and David Mann, pathologist in Manchester, they, they conducted a large study of brain tissue taking a biopsy. And, and working with Julie Snowden, the psychologist there, they were able to um, keep the duration between psychological cognitive assessment and, and sampling of the brain tissue to a constant two weeks. So there was no variability there. And when they looked at this, they looked at the number of plaques, the number of tangles, and Dave Mann was able to measure the number of pyramidal cells. Now, pyramidal cells are critical for high mental function. This most abundant brain, uh, most abundant neuron in the brain, account for, it counts for about 70% of the neurons in the brain. And it's basically, can, it connects the cortex, different areas of cortex, connecting the cortex with areas of subcortex. So these, and they, re, they use excitatory amino acids and neurotransmitters, particularly glutamate. And when he, and so they exist mainly in, in layers three, which connects, which, is, which are the cortical, cortical connections, and also in layer five, which are the cortical fugal connections connecting the cortex with the area of subcortex. When they looked at the number of pyramidal cells in cortical layers three and cortical layers five, they correlated with all of the uh, psychological and cognitive tests that we, we, we used whereas plaques and tangles didn't correlate uh, nearly as well, um, in fact, much less well. So this suggested that the key driver of the symptoms in Alzheimer's disease is loss of pyramidal cells, which makes sense because these are the cells that connect different areas of cortex and or different areas of the brain with other areas of the brain. So the, the other sort of flaw with the amyloid hypothesis is the uh, no amyloid-based therapy has been shown to reduce neuronal loss or slow the disease progression in a clinically meaningful way. So the three amyloid drugs that you mentioned, you got the first was aducunumab, lecanumab, and donanumab. They all are very effectively reduce the amount of amyloid in the brain, and that's been shown using a tracer uh, that's used in positron enrichment tomography. So you can look at in the intact brain and and show that the amount of amyloid is is reduced. But these the the, the all three drugs showed no changes in the number of tangles. And also one of them showed there was no slowing of the deterioration of, of atrophy within, within the hippocampus and hippocampal cell loss, loss of pyramidal cells in the hippocampus is quite a key, a key change in Alzheimer's disease. And it didn't slow that down at all. There were clinical benefits, but they were tiny. So then in a scale of 100, in one of the studies, for example, in a, a scale of 144 points of cognitive function, the change was only 10, was only 10 points in the placebo um, induced changes were about 13 points. So they, 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 statist they were statistically significant. 
but I, I challenge uh, uh, the challenge is whether or not these were clinically significant, and I, I, it looks as if they probably are not. Are these studies? Are they te- I know they're testing on the early stages of the disease. Have they done any tests carrying out on like later stages of the disease and the impacts there at all? Yeah, the, the later stage trials, they, they they didn't work. So that was one of the reasons suggested for the failure was that they weren't looking at the disease early enough. I, I don't quite understand that argument. The logic breaks down to me. If, if there is something driving the pathogenesis of the disease, it should, should drive the pathogenesis in a similar way throughout the course of the disease. So it, so in theory, it should work. So I, I think it's a, it's a dubious logic to say they didn't work because we weren't treating them early enough. Um, if, they, if, if it stops the pathogenesis of the disease, it should stop at the mid-stages, the late stages, and also the early stages. So I think that sort of raised, raised a red flag for me. The other thing about these three drugs uh, that have been approved by the FDA is they've got substantial side effects. So they, they produce the, what they call amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. So it makes the risk the brain is at more risk of swelling, of having a hemorrhage. And, they, and in, in a number of cases, they, it's even caused death. As a result of that, people who are on these drugs are going to have to be scanned on a regular basis because of this massive liability. And there's no way of predicting who's going to have the, uh, these areas, the amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. So you've got to screen all of them, which is, again, going to be expensive. Mm. What's the, um, the risk of having areas without these, these drugs? Is, there, is it a common side effect? No, no. It's in the name. They're amyloid-related. If you don't, if you, they're, they're relating to, um, to the drugs that they're given, I think. Specifically so it's, to it's, the drugs. Right, okay, I see. Yeah. And also the, the the price of them, the uh, aducanumab um, came in in the US at the price of $45,000 per patient per year because of the health system over there. They've reduced it to about 20000 a year. Still, the take-up is low. Lecanumab is coming in about $26,500 a year. So they're, they're expensive drugs. But also, in order to treat the patients, you have to know they have plaques. Therefore, you've got to, give, you've got to scan them. And it's not a normal scan. It's a positron emission tomography scan with a uh, with an imaging agent to detect amyloid. So that's expensive as well. And and then with the with the post treatment imaging that's required to pick up the uh, the areas, it, these could be very it could be very expensive to the healthcare providers to administer these 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 medicines. So it's, it's, which it remains to be seen how well they get taken up in the USA and across the world because it's it's going to cost healthcare systems. An awful lot of money to to roll out this this therapeutic strategy. Yeah, that comes yeah back full circle to the 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 burden of uh, the cost of disease. There then, it's a really tricky subject to navigate. And I know there's um, new legislation coming in in the US with um, Medicare to to try and reduce uh, drug prices. But it's it's nothing really like like you say. It's not. It doesn't. It's not really going to make much of an impact. I think. But um, I guess that's yet to be seen. Um, I actually have a, another question about uh, on a slightly more societal wavelength regarding this in terms of um, the disparities between, like you said, the testing to actually see uh, if people have, have got these these plaques and tangles and uh, the testing is quite niche and specialist. Does that lead to a difference in the people that are the, the people that are actually coming to get tested? Does that then lead to disparities in the people that, that this is being diagnosed in? Yes, because the, the the way it's worked in the past is that people didn't didn't weren't very clear whether somebody was alive or they had plaques and tangles because you normally needed to look 
post-mortem in order to confirm that. So we, we had the term probable Alzheimer's disease, which is one of the reasons that David Neary initiated the study of the biopsy tissue, because he wasn't sure whether the patients had Alzheimer's disease or not. And so the, uh, the biopsy work allowed them to be more confident in their diagnosis. But largely from work um, from my friend in Pittsburgh, Bill Clunk, who discovered the Pittsburgh imaging agent to identify the, the formation of, of amyloid within the intact Alzheimer brain that's transformed the field. Um, and there are, another, there are imaging markers now available to pick up tau, the key component of, of the neurofibrillary tangles. So we can actually diagnose patients during life now rather than after they're dead. So that's, that's opened up the field. But as I said, both of these biomarkers require a cyclotron. They, they use positron emission tomography. You need a cyclotron there. So those are very costly bits of kits. So it's, uh, you know, it's not it's not exactly a high throughput screen or a high throughput process by which patients can be assessed and so on. And also it adds, adds to the expense of, uh, of the treatment rollout. Yeah, it's just another another layer of like limiting the access to, to treatment there, really. So we can try and take a look at uh, what the future holds. So what are the prospects for pharmacotherapy for disease modifying medicines for Alzheimer's disease that we're looking forward to in the future? What do you think is the path to go down? <laughs> I think the, uh, the whole field as, uh, of Alzheimer's disease has breached the Zappa principle. Frank Zappa said that the, the human mind is like a parachute. It only works when it's open. <laughs> we've been a, a little closed-minded. We put so much emphasis. We, we, the amyloid field moved, moved forward. And as I said, the industry is investing an awful lot of money in the clinical trials. And it doesn't seem to have worked, but we still sort of um, attached to it. The whole point of a hypothesis is you put it up there, get it tested, and if it doesn't work, you move on to another hypothesis. I think we've been held back by putting too much emphasis on amyloid work. Um, and also the approach the approach is, is, is just a single target. And I think a much better approach um, may, may be uh, that the tau-based therapies will bring be- better clinical benefit to patients, and that remains to be seen. But... The, you know, the fact that tangles seem to me more related to the spread of the pathophysiology and the progress of the of the disease within the brain suggests it might have some benefit there. So that that remains an open question, but um, you know, there's hope there. But also uh, the possibility of um, a, a multi-targeted approach, targeted neurodegeneration in a, in a way that you hit oxidative distress, mitochondrial dysfunction, excitotoxicity, and neuroinflammation at the same time. I think that's a uh, an alternative approach which which may bear fruit and um, it remains to be seen but i think we focus too much on the field has focused too much on amyloid at the expense of other other possibilities and there are other possibilities and they need to be need to be considered uh, appropriately yeah absolutely i guess that is almost that there's so much history in in looking into this disease it has that caveat of history repeating itself often and come coming into circles and it's difficult to to get out of those those mindsets because they're so ingrained but yeah hopefully if we like you say it can be a little bit more open-minded and we'll be able to make some progress uh, in the future that would be i mean brilliant to see great well thank you so much alan well, thank you Lucy. yeah that was a really fascinating conversation and yeah there's so many elements to that i think it's going to be very very interesting to see how that progresses <laughs> thanks very much thank you so much once again to alan for speaking to me in this episode 
I found it a real education in neurodegenerative disorders. It was especially great to learn about where the research all began and seeing how far we've come, but also being able to discuss the challenges and questions that we still have today, showing that we still have a fair way to go in this field. Thank you all so much for listening and please make sure you follow the podcast on any platform where you usually listen so you can be notified about recent episodes. And for more Alzheimer's related content, please head over to cphionline.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com. Thank you.